0: Hi, welcome. This is Gary Rogowski and Splinters, our bi-weekly podcast from the Northwest Woodworking Studio. Today's topic, <laughs> I'm laughing because it's, it seems so apt. It's a chapter from my book Handmade and the chapter title is Don't Think. Don't Think. When I am thinking in the shop about the traffic jams, the stupidity of politicians, the war, I am not focused. I am not concentrating. I want to be one with the tool and just simply doing my work. I do not want to think about how I am holding the tool. I simply hold it. If I do this well, then time will melt away and the work will come from my hands. This is the place I hope for at the bench. When I know my work, then I never hesitate. There's nothing to think about. There is just the doing. Lest there be any confusion, when I first get to the bench, it still takes time to warm up. To look at it another way, it requires time to shut my brain off and get into the task at hand. If I'm working on something that I have not done in a while, a tool that has lain dormant for months or even years, and I'm picking it up again, there is a learning curve to travel. With the first stroke, the first part I work on, things feel a bit odd as I'm trying to find how to place myself at the bench. Do I hold this here? Put my feet there? Where do I place the chisel? Learning goes on, and with the second stroke, the second part I work on, things feel more fluid. They move easier. The work is smoother. By the third part, I remember who I am doing this set of moves. I remember it all, and the experience comes back to me. But there is always the learning, the remembering that has to be done first. It is simply that the learning curve is much faster for me now than it was at the beginning. When you watch a masterwork, they make it look simple. One sees a completed piece, and you might ask, how long it took to make? The answer is always the same. It takes five minutes or 15, depending on the difficulty of the task. But it took 20 years to learn how. When a master performs a piece, makes a stroke, turns a bowl, it seems to take no time at all for them. The time has already been put into the piece in the years of practice. The years that lend the facility to the master. The years that place that movement into the bones. Jiro Dreams of Sushi is a marvelous documentary movie made by David Gelb in 2011 that tells the story of Jiro, a sushi master. He owns a humble little shop in a Tokyo subway stop. Ten or twelve stools sit in a patient row at a counter for his customers. It takes months to get a reservation because of the reputation of his food and his artistry. His sushi, the simplicity of his presentation, the flavors he presents are like nothing anyone had ever tasted. His whole life had been spent in this pursuit of becoming better at making sushi. On his vacations, on his days off, he thought only of how to do his work better, how to choose the best fish, how to treat it salt it, Uses vinegars, where and how to best slice it, how to cook rice better, how to prepare it just so, how many minutes to massage the octopus, how to marry flavors and textures and presents. It is his life. He was consumed by becoming better at something that he knew more about than perhaps anyone else in the world, and he was 85 at the time. He had spent his life learning and was still not done. He still had the curiosity and the drive to want to learn more. What good fortune Giro had. In the movie, Giro's sons and apprentices learn his meticulous approach to every aspect of creating his memorable meals. In repetition was their education, and something was practiced daily, but only accepted as good when it was done right. One apprentice, one sad apprentice, spent two years practicing to make grilled egg until he finally got it right. He said that he wanted to cry when he finally did it correctly. A food writer remarked on Giro that he taught his apprentices for free, but it would take each of them 10 years to be a first-rate chef. In the late 1990s, I was teaching a week-long class at a craft school in Colorado. My neighbor next to me teaching in the pottery studio was a Japanese living treasure in ceramics, Takashi Nagasato. He had been honored by Japan for his contributions as an incredible potter and for his lifelong work in the field. His daughter, Hanako, was his assistant and student at his workshop there in the Rocky Mountains. At that time, it would not have placed the two in the same family. The small man with the mischievous smile and the bent look to him, his worn hands and quiet dignity, and the young woman with her spiked hair and jewelry-decorated face and an armada of earrings cascading down her eyebrows. But there were father and daughter, both working in clay. He was the past, the tradition. She was the craft, as it was to become. He and I were both so busy, we became only nodding acquaintances. But I'd heard of her tasks. It was her job as his assistant to do many chores for him throughout the days of class and translate his lectures into English. Her work as his apprentice, however, was different and quite simple. Make a pot. It takes minutes to do this when you're skilled at throwing clay. Make a pot. And she would make a pot, but then crush it. Make the same pot, the same shape again, but crush it. Repeat. And she did this for hours of practice. Make the same pot with the same shape, and learn that shape, and learn the movements, and learn how to hold her hands, and how the clay felt under them, and how the water moistened and eased the work, and how the speed of the wheel made a difference, and how the light changed how the pot looked. And when the blue of the sky made your hands move in a certain way, and if a bird sounded, how this affected the pot, how the pot changed even as it looked the same to others. And with each throw, with each pot, she became more practiced. She learned this pot, and she took it inside herself. She took this knowledge into her hands, her eyes, her bones, by practice, by repetition. She trained her hands to feel it, her eyes to see it, her breath to breathe the next pot into life. Each time. Each time the same. Precisely the same and different. She was learning mastery. In our world, in this culture, we think of such practice, such discipline as mythic. Sonny Rollins was already a well-known tenor sax player when he took a sabbatical to practice his saxophone on a New York City bridge. Cal Ripken played in over 2,600 baseball games in a row. Nowadays, it's enough to say I've studied 10,000 hours, I'm a master, or I took a two-day class making fill-in-the-blank. Perhaps 10,000 hours is enough if your field of interest is small. I gave a luncheon talk to a group of surgeons once. I took on the subject of and I asked them, in your education, were you a brilliant surgeon mastering your skills after 10,000 hours? Heads shook vehemently, no. A good surgeon? Many heads waved no. A surgeon beginning to learn his or her trade? Yes, has agreed. It's not possible to become truly good in such a short span. It takes years of grateful study. Grateful because if you have chosen well, this is no longer work, but your life's work. How fortunate to be able to discover the depths of your field. There is no end in sight. The more you study, the more you will learn how much more there is to learn. That's how it is. You're just beginning your journey. I know that it took me years to become proficient, and years more to master this work, to have precision. It doesn't happen like a stroll down the block and suddenly you turn a corner. Mastery takes time, and one day you will look up and watch or listen or see what you've made and understand that your work has a clarity that it didn't have when you started. It just happened all of a sudden, but over many years. An overnight success, but after a lifetime of work. Enjoy the pace of it. The work only gets better. Plus, I will always know that I have the skill in my hands and my heart, and no one can take that from me. This is a quote from a book called True Love. Thich Nhat Hanh, the author. When you are drinking water, drink water. Drink only water. That is meditation. You must not drink other things, such as your worries, your plans, wandering around in the realm of your thoughts. Thinking prevents us from touching life deeply. The end of this chapter is a uh, short hiking story, and I'm going to share that with you now. Abner Ridge. Years later, almost 35 years later from my first hike up it, I pulled out my map of Abner Ridge, and there was that penciled-in trail on the side of the mountain. I wanted to walk that trail again, this time with my beagle, Jimmy. We had to go past Klickitat Falls, up the ridge, and then find these old pencil marks. The trailhead was in a different spot from what I remember, but we found the falls fairly soon, and they were still beautiful. We headed up the ridge. The Abner Ridge Trail has somehow grown longer over the years. It was not just long. It was painful and long. The switchbacks each seemed to take miles. I hiked for hours to get close to the top of this ridge. Hiking in the forest can be exhilarating, a race against yourself or time, a challenge to surmount. Or it can settle into a slow, steady meditation on the forest, your place in it and in the world. It can be a slow and tedious march, too. This one was a long trip uphill with only the beagle to talk to. He was older than two, about ten years old, so he stayed in line pretty well. The walk took hours with no views except of trees. At one of the switchbacks, I finally got a glimpse out between the trees north, maybe to Washington. Mostly what I saw some distance away were a lot more trees. It was nice to get this new sense of scale, but as soon as I turned around, it was back up into the forest. The trail wound along the side of a long slope. A beautiful, tall, dark grove of conifers took over one section of the walk. We walked between their trunks, then around them to the switchback. And finally I looked through the tops of them, down at their bases below me. This was a slow perambulation of a tree's growth habit. After four hours of hiking, we finally got up to a small spring and pond, and there was a bit of grass to rest on. I set down my space blanket and got out some lunch. The beagle was, of course, my new best friend then, and we shared a bit of a sandwich. I was tired, I had to admit it. The trail just didn't want to stop, and it was kicking my butt. It kept going on forever, and I wanted to turn around. I had seen enough trees for one day. It had been a good hike, but getting home would be good too. We had plenty of daylight, but it, it had been a long day. Why keep pushing if there was nothing to see up here? The map said view, but where was it? I had no clue. Maybe time had muddied the view or my memory of it. I kept thinking about the long walk home. Downhill is tough on my knees. Now I'm skipping a little bit. It's later in the book, but I wanted to finish up this story. So I checked the map again and something in me said, just keep going for a little ways more and see what you see. Keep going up, go up around the bend, just go up, see what's there. We have to be close to seeing something. I wanted to see this view that I had marked on my map. We have to be close. So I argued with myself for a little while and then I gave myself 15 minutes more of hiking. If we were still in trees by then, I would turn around. No more trees. Well, except on the way down. I was tired of going up. But up, up is the only way, I said to myself. I picked up and moved on. And after climbing for 10 or 15 minutes more, I got this glimpse of way down south. Too hazy a day to see much, but Mount Jefferson was out there and more beyond it. I knew I was close. We turned a corner on the trail and hit the edge of the ridgeline. We came out on a great meadow lined with flowers and a few spare trees scattered about us. And there in front of us, bigger than a fist in your eye, was a mountain. All oh, 11,000 and some feet of them just sitting right before me. It was like having a birthday with all my presents. They were all hard to unwrap. But then when I wasn't expecting very much, I got more than my heart's desire. It was a sight, my goodness. Hard not to yell and shout about. I looked up at that mountain. And down I stood at the carved out river valley some 2,000 feet below me that I'd walked on sometime before. Distance was mine in every direction. I could look out for miles. This opening, this reveal stunned me. I had no idea that this was my goal. I'd forgotten it. I'd never remembered it like this. And truly that trip we took oh so many years ago must have been on a gray day because I don't remember seeing this. Me and the beagle picked our way along this little trail through the remains of the wildflowers and some late bloomers and came up the edge of a precipice which looked down into the river gorge and across to the west side of the mountain. Oh, it was hundreds, thousands of yards away and nothing between us in it but air. And the mountain? Well, the mountain just kept going up and up. And if you walked along the edge of the cliffside and looked south, you saw the river and the canyon it had carved out and the flanks of the mountain looking placid and not steep at all. And beyond were the cascades stretching out south. It was a fine and stupendous viewpoint, and I had almost missed it. My goodness. What a view. The beagle and I sat. By then it was about three in the afternoon, we had to get back before we lost the sun. The view was a feast and I could have kept at it for hours, but it was enough to have seen this, took a few pictures, it was enough to have waited for this, to have put up with the pain for this astonishing picture in my mind. It was time for us to beat it downhill before the sun did. We hiked downhill and it was an eight hour hike before it was all said and done. No one had busted into the car. In the parking lot, there were four guys on mountain bikes filming themselves jumping off small hillsides. Not quite as impressive as the mountain view I had received that day, I thought, but there you have it. Folks just have their own interests in life. We made it back okay, and although the Beagle didn't seem too impressed by the view, I will never forget what getting up off my tired old butt and trudging onward won me that day. It was a gift and I would never have seen it or tried it again if I hadn't gone out on that clear day. Truly, I was the lucky man, and I wanted to tell you about this. The note I wrote to myself after getting back home. Nothing like eight hours of hiking to take your mind off your troubles and put them onto your knees. I think of that hike up the ridge as bringing something full circle, but it's never that way. The music doesn't swell, and the credits don't run in a life that always stays fulfilled. I keep living, struggling, working through the low times, trying to enjoy the high ones. I try to understand my responsibility to pass on to others what I have learned. All I know is that we, none of us, have much time on this earth. We are each here for a short while. There will be evidence if we choose to do this creative work. We need to make things that leave a mark, a good mark, one that says someone was here trying to do something of value. Speak up. Pass along the knowledge that we have so that others may benefit from it and make a life for themselves. Show that the act of forgiveness is one of our most important tasks. Leave good evidence of yourself. Do good work. Thanks very much for listening. This has been Gary Rogowski with Splinters. Please check out our website, northwestwoodworking.com. If you have any questions, uh, drop me a note on coffee and buy me a coffee. I appreciate your support there. And I am happy to answer any questions that may arise. I appreciate you listening in and uh, hope you check out the website. We've got a Mastery Open House. Oh, yeah, we've got a Mastery Open House coming on April 11th. Please drop by the studio if you are in the area. Come check out some of the Mastery students and their work. and uh, We'll do some demos, refreshments. You know, It'll be fun. Thanks very much for listening. Take care.